Thanks, Danny. Um, I wonder if you've ever heard, as you've been trying to share the gospel with a friend, uh, someone uh, say to you, well, that's just your interpretation. Has anyone heard that? That's just your interpretation. Um, assuming that that will end the debate. That they sort of say, well, that's just your interpretation. There are many others. Therefore, uh, you can't be right, or at least you can't be sure that you're right. For many in our society, the idea that we can't be sure of anything is absolutely ingrained in our thinking. And because we can't be sure of anything, then it's pointless even to investigate Christianity. I don't know if you've encountered that. I've encountered that. Where people say, oh, well, other people think differently. Therefore, either you can't be right, or therefore it's not really worth bothering about because there's so much difference of opinion. Now, one of, what I want to do this, this uh, evening is, is help us see where we got to how we got to this point historically. Uh, how we got to the point where uh, Francis Schaeffer can say, it's a quote on the screen, thanks Jacob, uh, that's the one. Uh, Many of the non-Christian students whom I've met on the continent not only do not believe in anything, but do not even feel capable of making the judgment necessary not to believe in anything. I don't know if you recognise that. How did we get there? Uh, so we're going to do, as Danny said, we're going to do something a bit different today. We're not going to look at a particular era of church history, but an era of, if you like, secular history. I hate that phrase. All history is actually God's history, isn't it? But you know what I mean. Um, we'll look at a broad sweep of intellectual history in the West, which has defined our thinking today. And we'll start to sketch out a sort of biblical response to it, a, a response that I've um, put together, but really based on the writings of Churches, uh, people in church history who've uh, have come up with better ideas than I can. We're going to look at the period from the 16th century onwards where we left the Puritans last week as a time of intellectual crisis. And the crisis is about one question, how do we decide whether something is true? How can we know what we ought to believe? What criteria could we use to decide whether something or not is true or not? And we'll start with uh, Desiderius Erasmus. You might remember Erasmus from a couple of weeks ago. He was the guy who published the Greek New Testament. Remember him? Um, which showed that the Roman Catholic Church had made some pretty big decisions based on some pretty dodgy translations, and Luther exposed some of those. But actually, Erasmus wasn't a friend of the Reformation. He and Luther uh, wrote against each other. Erasmus believed, along with the rest of the Roman Catholic Church, that the scriptures are basically obscure. They couldn't be understood by you and me. They needed to be interpreted to us by the church, by a body of official interpreters called the magisterium. Oh, it already sounds like a Bond villain, doesn't it? But anyway, the, the point was, they didn't think that we could understand the Bible. It needed to be under, uh, interpreted to us by the church. Now, Erasmus was a very deep thinker, and he had, he had a little think about this, and he was well aware that that, actually didn't really solve the problem of how we know something is true. He thought, well, I can't be sure of the Bible because it's obscure, so I go to the magisterium. But hang on a minute. How do I trust the magisterium? How do I know that they're telling the truth? The writings of the magisterium are actually much harder to understand than the Bible, I reckon. Uh, so so how, who interprets the magisterium to me? And he got himself in a bit of a knot with this. But eventually he realised that he didn't care. <laughs> uh, here's what he said on the screen. I would go over to the sentiments of the sceptics. He'd, so he'd believe that you couldn't understand anything if only the inviolable authority of the church allowed it. Now, do you see how Erasmus has solved the problem? What, how does he decide whether something is true 
It's the inviolable, the unchangeable authority of the church. The church decides what he should believe. And Erasmus suppressed his own doubts on the matter by simply saying, well, I will be a Christian fool. That was the words he used. I will be a Christian fool. I'll believe what the church says without questioning it, and I'll avoid any theological controversies just by doing what the church said. That's how Erasmus thought he should resolve this. How do I I know what to believe? I just do what the church tells me. And just not worry about it. Um, so that was Erasmus. He said, I can't be sure of Scripture, so I'll go to the church. I can't be sure of the church, but I'm just going to stick there anyway. Enter René Descartes. Descartes was French. He's a Christian, actually. And he was thoroughly worried by this problem of what criteria do we use to decide whether something is true. And he took it much further than Erasmus. He couldn't be sort of intellectually satisfied with just saying, well, I just believe what the church says. It wasn't good enough for him. He thought, well, what if the church is wrong? Well, maybe I'll trust the philosophers. But what if the philosophers are wrong? Well, maybe I'll trust myself and my own reason. What if I'm wrong? Uh, Descartes went so so far as to think, what if an evil spirit was living inside of me and changing my thinking, distorting it, distorting my every thought so that it became irrational and wrong? Who can I trust? Maybe there's nothing real. How, How do I know what is true? How do I know what to believe? Descartes' answer to his own question was to say, well, I know one fact about the universe. I know one fact. I am thinking about this. That's the only fact he could think of. Well, I'm, having a, I'm really stressed here. I'm stressed. I'm thinking. I'm having all these questions and doubts. I'm thinking. And if I can think, therefore, at least I must exist. If I think, therefore, I am. I see, that's where, Descartes, that's where that phrase comes from. And if I exist, well, hang on. That means that Andy Blaine exists, because I talked to Andy Blaine this morning. And if Andy Blaine exists, that means this Bible exists. That Bible exists, this means that God exists. That's how, that's how he was trying to work it. I start from me and my sort of knowledge that I can think, and then I work my way to God, and then I trust God. Okay, so you might think, well, that's a bit of a strange way of going about things, but that's what he did. And that sort of worked for Descartes, because he was a Christian. He really wanted God to be real and believable. But then other people came along, people like Baruch Spinoza. I love these names. Why don't we call our children Baruch anymore? Anyway, he uh, he took René Descartes' ideas, and he sort of ran with them in very unhelpful directions. Spinoza said, look, guys, look, Desiderius and René, this is getting us nowhere. We're, tr- we're tying ourselves up in knots trying to figure out how we can trust the Bible. Simple solution, we shouldn't. Or at least, we should only trust the Bible when it matches up with clear, rational ideas about the universe, when it helps us live good moral lives. That was his criterion for working out whether something was true. Is it rational? Is it reasonable? So Spinoza worked his way through scripture and he threw out anything that he thought was sort of supernatural or weird, which was quite a lot, and he was left with some sort of basic moral commands. Spinoza said that it didn't really matter. What was important about the Bible wasn't whether it was true. That's the wrong question. He said truth belongs to the realms of philosophy and reason and science, and most of the Bible hasn't got anything to do with that. The Bible's got to do with faith, and faith and reason aren't the same thing. All that matters in faith is not whether something is true, it's whether something is useful. This is what Spinoza was saying. So how do we know what's true? Well, we know what's true because it seems reasonable to us. And anything else we can just sort of throw away, or if it's useful, we'll keep it. And so Spinoza had this separation, you see, between reason and faith. Reason is where truth lives, 
Faith is just where youthfulness lives. It doesn't have to be, you know, sure anything. And that's where Immanuel Kant comes in. Kant said that the world was separated into two realms. There's the real world, which is the world of facts and truth and science and reason, all the rest of it. But the problem is that we can never know that world. All we can ever know is what we think about that world. This is getting a bit philosophical, but that's okay. These guys are philosophers. What did you expect? So, for example, take this um, roll of tape. Okay? In the real world, there is, we, we assume, some kind of roll of tape here. We can assume that. But what can I know about this roll of tape? I can know that it, seems it's, it feels hard in the middle to me. It feels squidgy in the outside to me. It looks sort of beige on the outside to me. And it's got the words Q-Connect on the inside. At least I think that's what it says. That's how it, what it's saying to me. Is that really true? I have no idea. All I can know is what I think about this roll of tape. So the world is divided into two. There's the real world and what Kant called the phenomenal world, the world which is my perception of the real world. And I can't really get... I, I can only know the world through my senses, right? So I can never get through that world to the real world. How can I know there's a God? I, no, I can't. I can't know there's a God. I can know that I think there's a God, but I can't know there's a God. How can I know that there's a roll of tape under here? I can't really. I know that I think that, but I can't. So what should I do? Kant says, just commit. He says, have the courage of your own understanding. You can only know your own world anyway, so you might as well just commit to it. Kant says this on the screen. We can and must believe what we think we know of the world as true. So I think there's a roll of tape under here, and I'm jolly well going to believe it. I think there's a God. Yeah, let's go for that. I don't think there's a God. Sure, well, let's go for that too. It was all very, uh, very sort of me-centred. Um, but that's the way Kant said. We can't work out if things are true or not. It's too hard. we just got to commit to what we think we know. Now, does that leave any room for faith at all? Well, here's a guy, Friedrich Schleiermacher. He was a guy who was very influenced by Kant, lived a bit long, later on, German, I think. Uh, Schleiermacher, as a young man, was a very committed evangelical Christian. But he, like uh, Spinoza, came to believe that most of the scriptures were irrational and unbelievable. But he didn't abandon his faith. In fact, he managed to get himself ordained as a pastor. I'm not quite sure how, but he did. He pastored the church the rest of his life, while not believing in things like the incarnation and the resurrection. How did he do that? Well, Schleiermacher held on to his faith by holding on to his experience. He somehow knew that God was out there. Again, now he didn't know how he knew that really. He just knew. And the more people he spoke to, the more he realized that pretty much everyone seemed to think that, that there was something out there. And so he reckoned the way to get in touch with God wasn't actually through reason or thinking or the mind anyway. So the whole question doesn't really matter. It was, what we've got to do is to tap into that sort of sense of God, what he called, get this, the pre-critical religious self-consciousness. <laughs> hey. uh, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Schleiermacher said, I believe, therefore I am. I, I just know that God is out there. I don't have to justify it, rationalize it, prove it, work out why I believe it. I just know. Can you see, by the way, how individualistic this is all getting? whether it's Christian people like Descartes or maybe Schleiermacher or non-Christians like Spinoza and maybe Kant, it all gets a bit confusing. But either way, it's all about me and my interpretation of the world. Other people, other groups don't get to tell me what to do. 
We've moved a long way from Erasmus. Well, he just said, I just believe the church. These guys are saying, no, 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 it's all about me. And that leads us to Friedrich Nietzsche. You remember heard of this guy? You see, before Nietzsche, all these thinkers tried to say, there is some way we can get to truth of some kind. Our lives can have meaning. They can have genuine meaning based on something real. And Nietzsche said, no, they can't. Uh, he said, every attempt to try and discern or create any meaning in this universe is a complete sham. There is no meaning, there is no truth. The only option left is to deconstruct any attempts at telling us that there is. This is what Nietzsche said was so dangerous, people telling us there is meaning in the world. No, it's a sham, says Nietzsche. Smash the church, destroy the philosophies. Every single man just had to stand for himself without anyone telling him how to interpret reality because there is no reality. This is where we got to. Um, Nietzsche once heard of an earthquake off the coast of France somewhere that had killed 40 people, and he said, rejoice, rejoice in that death, because there's no meaning. That's the kind of guy he was. And the guys that came after Nietzsche basically continued his project. Jacques Derrida, the guy who died not long ago, uh, he took Nietzsche's insights about reality and applied them to language. So Nietzsche says, no attempt to describe reality is true, they should all be destroyed. Derrida says, yes, but as well as that, words themselves don't describe reality. We can never really know the meaning of words. You know, you say potato. Oh, no, I shouldn't have chosen that. <laughs> I say potato. You say potato. What do you mean by potato? I don't know. It could mean anything. It could mean fish. Who, who knows? I don't know. I can't get into your head. I can't get into your world. You're seeing the world through your eyes. I'm seeing the world through my eyes. We can't. We can't we're not speaking the same language at all. So all we can do is think of our own interpretation. That's the only thing we can trust. And actually that makes, says Derrida, words deeply suspicious because they are when Charlotte says potato to me, she's oppressing me by trying to get me to believe something about reality. She's trying to get me to get into her crazy head, not having that. So we should deliberately resist that by deconstructing text. We should deliberately come up, says Derrida, with interpretations of text which are not what the author wanted them to mean. Charlotte says potato, I should say, you mean cabbage. <laughs> and so just as Kant said, we can construct reality however we like, Derrida said we can read texts however we like. Now that was a very, very whistle-stop tour through about 600 years of intellectual thinking. But can you see something of the progression there? On your sheets is a little summary of what we've seen. So Erasmus says... The church determines that God can be believed. The Bible's too hard. Let's just go with the church. Descartes says, no, I don't really trust the church either. The thinking self determines that God can be believed. I think, therefore I am, therefore God is, therefore everything's fine. Spinoza says, no reason, my thinking determines when God can be believed. Sometimes he can't, and we just have to figure out when. Kant says... I determine what ought to be believed, whether it's God or not. Just commit to it. Schleiermacher tries to get some ground back by saying, well, we're already aware of what ought to be believed. We're already aware of God somehow, but we shouldn't think about it too hard. Nietzsche says, no one can tell me what ought to be believed. And Derrida says, words can't even tell us what ought to be believed. That's the, that's the sort of slide we've had. So have a think. What does each thinker say about Scripture? from that little summary of their thought. What does each think? What are they saying about Scripture? What's Erasmus saying about Scripture? 
He's saying that Scripture is subordinate to the church. I can't understand Scripture, but I can understand the church. Good luck to him. I can't really understand what the Roman Catholic Church says half the time, but he could. So the Scripture is subordinate to the church. The church tells what Scripture means. What does Descartes say? Descartes says that Scripture is subordinate to myself. Why can I trust Scripture? Well, I'm going to start with me to answer that question. Therefore, I'm in charge. Spinoza, what does he say about Scripture? He says that Scripture is subordinate to my reason. I can look at Scripture and decide one way or the other whether I think it's reasonable or not. If it's not reasonable, I don't have to believe it. What does Kant think about Scripture? Kant really thinks that Scripture is sort of superfluous. It's a bit irrelevant. If you want to commit to it, fine, but you don't have to. It doesn't really make a difference. What did Schleiermacher think about Scripture? Schleiermacher just thought it was sort of a record of other people's religious experience. So he could read it and say, oh, that's what Paul thought about God. Oh, that's interesting. That's what Moses thought about God. Oh, okay. But what do I think about God? So in that sense, it's also sort of irrelevant. What about Nietzsche? What did Nietzsche think about Scripture? He thought Scripture should be destroyed. It's an evil attempt to try and make someone believe in a reality that isn't there, so we should smash it. And what did Derrida think about Scripture? Derrida thought the Scripture was a power play. It was a way of somebody, the church, trying to control me. Three things over the page to note. I think you can see there, as we've sort of done that whistle-stop tour, you can see there the the clear drift into deeper and deeper scepticism and despair. Can you see that? I think this in part explains the materialism and hedonism of our own society. People in our society have been repeatedly told, either explicitly or through sort of these ideas just filtering out, there's no way we can be sure about anything. You don't know if there's a God, you don't know if there's even a roll of tape under this pulpit, you don't know anything. You can't be sure. So what do you do? Well, go and have a drink. Do you know? Just eat, drink and be merry. If we can't, know, we might as well enjoy ourselves. You do get some sort of dedicated atheists, but most non-Christians, frankly, I think, are basically agnostic because they couldn't care less about questions of whether God exists because they've already been told that it's undecidable and therefore useless. Second thing to note is that many of these folk claim to be Christian, and, and you can see their influence within Christian thinking today. So Erasmus uh, is still pretty much the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Spinoza uh, is sort of a, an early forerunner of liberalism, sort of saying we can believe the th- stuff in Scripture that seems believable. Uh, Kant's similar there as well. Uh, and Schleiermacher is a, a sort of early forerunner of sort of charismatic theology. What matters is me tapping into God in a way that sort of, some charismatic theology shouldn't be unfair, that sort of bypasses the mind and reason, is about direct experience. It's just helpful, I think, to see the root of some of those ideas. It doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, but it helps to evaluate the fruit of them to see where those ideas have come from. Third um, implication is just to note that this is what happens when you unmoor yourself from Scripture. When you let go of the Bible, um, this is where you pretty much end up, logically speaking. It's very, I just want to see, just want to see the, the horror of that, really. It's very easy to think of the Bible as restrictive, and sort of envy those on the outside who are free. And people always go on about their freedom. Guys, this is what freedom looks like. It looks like anarchy. 
this sort of complete individualism and autonomy has profound ethical fruit. Because now everyone's viewing reality as they want, and you can't tell me what to believe, and I'm not listening to you because you've got strange ideas about words. And now everyone's fighting for their own corner, which means that we all have different claims, different claims on what I ought to be able to do. And those competing claims lead to strife and violence and death. I think I'm free to live a quiet life. That's my world. My next-door neighbour thinks he's free to play his music, his heavy metal music. My next-door neighbour is a 90-year-old called Cynthia. But <laughs> she plays Metallica all night. But that's freedom to her. That's the world to her. How dare I tell her she's wrong? We've got stress. Uh, I think I've got freedom to act according to my conscience, but I think over here I have freedom to have my homosexual relationship celebrated. It's conflict because we're just reading the world differently. I think this woman has a freedom to do what she likes with her own body. I think the, the unborn has a freedom to live. How do we decide between those competing claims to freedom? How do we decide what's right, what's true? Well, if we take our hand off the tiller of Scripture... We have no firm basis on which to decide. Instead, what tends to happen is the people who are most powerful and who shout the loudest win. You see, this is the irony of the last few hundred years of Christian thinking. Derrida and Nietzsche and all the rest of it thought they were freeing people from power plays and from corrupt authorities. Actually, they're enabling power plays because they're saying, you, small person, don't have any real knowledge of what the world is. I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm going to smash you. What does scripture say about these people? <clears throat> well, it's important to note that this drift into where we are now, this despair and this not really knowing what to do, that's nothing new. This sort of skepticism about whether you can know anything didn't start with Erasmus. The first words spoken against God in scripture are skeptical. Here's the snake. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Do you see the point? Satan doesn't start by flatly denying God's word. He starts by sowing seeds of doubt as to whether God really has spoken, whether Eve can really be sure of what God has said. And we see those examples of that skepticism throughout Scripture. And the key thing the Bible teaches us about that skepticism is that it's not an intellectual problem, it's a moral problem. You can see that in a number of places in Scripture. Think of Pharaoh at the time of the plagues. Think of the evidence he's given, the reasons he has to believe. He has God's word spoken to him by Moses. He has the evidence of his own eyes. He has the testimony of his own magicians. He has the pleading of his servants, all telling him this is God's work. But what happens? He keeps saying, I do not know this God, and I will not let this people go. Why? Because he has a hard heart. His skepticism about God's word and his authority and his power, it's a moral issue. He has a hard heart which refuses to believe the evidence of his own eyes. A couple of other quotes on the sheet. Proverbs. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you'd responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. Do you see the point? Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If there is repentance and faith, if we respond to the Lord's rebuke, we'll begin to understand God's words. But people will not repent because they love their simple ways, by which the author means their godlessness. They love mockery. 
They love their sinful way of life. It's a moral issue, a heart issue, not an intellectual one. Romans 1, I'll, I'll just skip, just you've said it before, notice in Romans there's plenty of evidence. The reason people don't believe that God's there is not because there's lack of evidence. It's because they're, they are, their sinful hearts are hard. People suppress the truth by their wickedness. We don't want to believe it. This is fascinating and brilliant from 2 Peter. Bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Peter straight up admits that there's stuff in Paul's letters which is difficult. I hope that encourages you as you go off to study Romans. Peter didn't get it either. No, don't. it's not that hard. But Peter struggled. It's difficult stuff. We've got to use our brains. But who is it that gets it wrong? Who is it that distorts the message of Paul not thick people, not unintelligent people, but ignorant and unstable people. And those are moral categories. They are people who are deliberately twisting those words in order to ruin themselves to their own destruction. The scripture says if we're skeptical about God's word, that's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral issue. It's a heart issue. So what we need is not just education. We need enlightenment from God's spirit. We need awakening. And that's the second thing that Scripture would say to Erasmus and friends, that God gives life and understanding through ordinary means. One of the common factors running through the thinkers we've looked at is that somehow the usual tools of communication don't work, or at least they don't work when it comes to the Bible. We're told that the Bible is too hard to understand, says Erasmus, or that language itself is broken, says Derrida, we can't, under, we can't communicate with each other. Or that we shouldn't believe what other people tell us anyway because they're just trying to destroy us, that's what Nietzsche says. We're told we should look for special ways of meeting with God, like our own experiences, Schleiermacher, or the mediation of the church, Erasmus. We, should, we, should, we can't use the usual thing of just reading and thinking. It doesn't work, these all, all these thinkers say. But the Bible's very clear that those usual means of understanding and communication, they're invented by God and given to us. They continue to work. They are God's means of granting his life and understanding. From the very beginning, from Genesis 1, God is a speaking God, and he gives his people language with which to communicate. God invented language. He gets his people to write down what they hear and pass it on to other people. His spirit gives people understanding in what they hear. And through the words of the Bible, clearly explained, God's spirit gives us life. That's what the whole of Romans is about. All that logical argument, all that words, all that communication to teach us that God's, the gospel is powerful and gives life. There's nothing magical or mystical about reading scripture. We can just use the ordinary tools of reading and listening and communication that still work. But God works through those things, through those ordinary things that he invented by his spirit to grant us life. So here's a couple of examples of that. Deuteronomy 30, one of my favorite passages of scripture. What I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may bear it. So Moses is saying there, the, the, the law that you're given isn't given you in some mystical heavenly language that you have to go on some heavenly experiential quest to learn the secrets of the angels. No, it's written in Hebrew. You guys speak Hebrew. This should be fine. Uh, nor is it beyond the sea, 
so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey. It's written in your language. There's no foreign translator needed. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. God has come and spoken a word that can be understood. And that's the means that he decided to use. And people scoff at that. People think that it's all too, it's, it's not somehow not intellectual enough or not mystical enough. But this is what God has promised to use, and we should trust him. Um, yeah, I will skip Jeremiah 36. And if you read it, you tell me what my point was, because it's an interesting one. But I'm going to discuss it a bit. And that brings us to the third point. God gives life and understanding through ordinary means. The third point, understanding is grounded in personal relationship of trust. Again, one of the common features of the guys we've looked at very quickly is how they view the Bible or view the world as a sort of impersonal object, something to be studied, analysed, unpacked, critiqued, sort of an item of analysis. And as they analyse the Bible or the world or language, they come to find it untrustworthy or unreliable. Me, Baruch Spinoza, sitting in my room, reading the Bible, looking at it, thinking, I don't, no, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. It's, it's not very convincing. Of course, though, normally when we come to believe something, that's very often in the context of a personal relationship, a trusting relationship. I find something believable if it comes from someone I know and I love and I trust. So if uh, I read a review of a cafe and it says the cheese on toast is awful, I go to my friend Jack, who's, who I know and I love and I trust, and he says, no, it's great, you should go. And I'm more likely to believe Jack because he's a cheese on toast expert and he's my friend. That was a weird analogy. Um, <laughs> but the point is this. In Scripture, we have a word which is not impersonal, but personal. It's personal for two reasons. Firstly, in God's word, we meet a person. We meet the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to know him. We're not just finding out facts about the universe. We're coming into a relationship with Jesus as we read. That's what God has promised through his ordinary means of just reading and thinking and talking and hearing testimony, we'll meet Jesus. And because of his attitude to scripture, he, he recommends the scriptures to us, if you like. He says, you know, uh, he trusts the Old Testament, he commissions the New Testament. He says, these are God's words. Well, because I trust and love Jesus, I can be confident about the rest of the Bible. The second reason the scriptures are personal is because God continues to speak through them. His spirit is active in helping us understand. For the word of God is living and active, says Hebrews, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I may have used this analogy before, but um, I might have used it this series, actually, sorry. When we're reading Shakespeare, if there's something difficult to understand, wouldn't it be really useful if Shakespeare could come back from the dead, zombie Shakespeare, and tell us what it meant. That'd be great. That'd be lovely. Because then we wouldn't be uncertain anymore. Derrida wouldn't have it. He'd say, no, I reject your interpretation, you anarchist. Anyway, but forget Derrida. It'd be great. It'd be lovely. Well, we have that every time we read the scripture. God's word never leaves his presence. It never leaves the presence of, his, of the author. The spirit is always there, speaking God's words to us. So we can, over time, in community, be sure about this word. Let's just draw on some implications. The first is confidence. We were looking at 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago. We were seeing that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He doesn't 
who tends to choose people who are not very impressive in the eyes of the world. Hey, guys. Uh, who, who aren't the brightest, sorry, and who aren't the most impressive. Good for us. That does not mean that the Bible is intellectually inferior or that Christian theology is a matter of switching your brain off. No, it is God's wisdom which is greater than man. Sorry, God's foolish, you know what I mean. God's, God's wisdom is in the cross. We can be confident that trusting in God's word is not only rational and right, it's the only sane way to live. God invented the universe. He gave us his word to explain it. What, what else could you do? It's the most rational thing to do. If we trust the scriptures, we're living with the grain of the universe. And as soon as you take your hands off that, you end up here. You end up thinking, well, I can't know anything. And then just despair or just in hedonism, which will lead to destruction. All other attempts at finding meaning in the universe and in despair and doubt. So be glad of God's clear word. Read it, enjoy it. Be confident that we can know God. The other implication is that this brings us a great opportunity. Because it's easy when we're confronted with the that's just your interpretation comeback to just retreat and say, oh, yeah, well, it, it is, but you know, I'm pretty sure of it. Rather, if this is the word that we can have confidence in, we can say, well, yes, yes, it is actually. It is my interpretation. But do you think you have a better one? Have you actually read the Bible? It's actually pretty clear on this. I don't think you disagree with me on the interpretation of the text I'm talking about. Do you just want to have a look? Because most people, when they say that's just your interpretation, mean this. I haven't got an interpretation because I've never read it. So open the Bible with people and say, well, what do you think this is saying? Trust God's word. Pray. If you want to think any more about this, um, Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word, very, very helpful. And uh, it should be on the bookstore, I'm sure. And um, for a book which is going to help us understand the whole of this, Kirsty Burkitt's The Essence of the Reformation, which is specifically about the Reformation, but will help you tap into church history more widely as well. Very helpful. And I've noticed there's a new edition on the bookstore which has primary texts from Luther, Calvin, and Cranmer for free. So get involved. Um, let me pray, and then we'll hand over back to Danny. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken a clear word to us, and thank you that it is a present word, that you speak through it by your, script, by your spirit. Thank you that we can use the ordinary means you've given us of, of community, of conversation, of reading and thinking and hearing sermons and being in Bible studies and talking and using our brains. And those are the means that you've invested with your power to uh, bring your word to us and waken us up and save us from that, that moral corruption that says that we don't want to hear from you. Father, please save us from uh, these, uh, the, the, the plight of these guys who are so f- have taken their hands off Scripture and ended up in despair and in doubt. Uh, Father, Father, please keep us trusting in your words and please would we love it and read it and share it with each other to build each other up. In Jesus' name, amen.